ourselves life on the sand in order to build our house on the rock. We deny ourselves life on the sand, the easy things, the things we want in the moment, the things that are expedient, we deny ourselves those so that we can have the better thing that God's trying to give us, what the New Testament calls the life that is truly life. And so we're going we're gonna to see that as we go along, but what I want to say is I don't think God calls us to deny ourselves for the sake of denying ourselves. He calls us to deny ourselves the small so that we can have the great, the temporary so that we can have the eternal. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount today. Last week, just for a recap, you might remember Jesus began addressing the law, the law and the prophets, what we know of as the Old Testament. Um, for them, that would have included the sort of moralistic do's and don'ts, God's standard of what's right and what's wrong. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the purpose of the law is so that when we look at it, we see God's perfect standard, we realize we are not perfect. That every one of us has imperfections, failure, what the Bible calls sin. Okay, so... Um, the law shows us basically that we need God's grace and kindness. So let's just establish the fact that we're all there. We're all on the same page. And let's just try a little exercise, okay? There are 613 directives in the Old Testament. I'm going to pick one. We know it as the Eighth Commandment, which in essence says, don't lie. Don't be dishonest. It says, if you want to get really technical, it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't lie, okay? The Eighth Commandment. So raise your hand if you've never lied. You've never been dishonest. All right. Well, actually, Ella probably, okay, maybe. Her mom could tell us uh, whether or not that's true. It's pretty early in the game for her, so. Uh, but I think we could clearly establish. I just picked one. We don't need to even bother with the other 612. All of us are imperfect. All of us need God's grace in that way. None of us have ever been perfect in this area. We're in bad shape, okay? I guess we don't need to go through the rest. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. And it's a problem in the sense that God is perfect and holy, and we are very much imperfect and flawed. We all know that. I mean, none of us, I don't think anyone here is deceived enough to think that somehow they're the one who's perfect. But that imperfection creates a gap between us and God. So God's answer to that was to come into humanity and to give his own life as the penalty or the payment of the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross. It's, it's really pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. And so Jesus makes this clarifying statement last week in Matthew 5, chapter 17. He says, he's saying, yes, I, I've pay, I'm paying the bill for your sin, but do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, he says. I haven't come to get rid of them. I've come to fulfill them. And we talked last week about ways that he has fulfilled them. He didn't come to get rid of God's standard. He came to fulfill it. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew 5, 21, and Jesus is going to teach us about this new way of understanding the law, of understanding God's standard of perfection. And I'll just add, he's going to address a number of topics um, that each of them could be a sermon on its own, but we're actually going to fly through all of them because I, what I really want to do is just see the overarching point that Jesus is making in this, in this section. My job as a pastor, believe it or not, is actually not to perform weddings and funerals. Uh, that's, a, that's sort of a cultural thing, hospital visits, that kind of stuff. Like, that's what, like, Americans expect pastors to do. It's actually not what the Bible necessarily says pastors do. What the Bible says is that pastors equip saints 
to walk with the Lord and do works of ministry. So I want you to know I'm taking that very seriously. And so I'm going to say, let's be a church who hears the word and puts it into practice. Hears the word and puts it into practice. So Jesus begins to address all these different moral laws. And you know I'm serious because I brought my big Bible. So I'm going to start reading. Verse 21. We're going to take this. There's six sections, actually. We'll, we'll take them one at a time. Verse 21, he says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. That's a kind of a harsh teaching, isn't it? Uh, so let's, let's just agree with something that we, we agree on, I think. Uh, the command, you shall not murder, that's a good law. We agree on that? That's, that's a good law. Um, you know, that's something that we, we, we all agree, good law, we shouldn't, that we don't want that in our society. The problem is that the religious teachers had, over time, began to teach that it was okay to hate someone. It's okay to slander them. It's okay to, to harm them in any way, so long as you don't do the physical act of taking their life. That was, they'd completely neglected the spirit of the law and just read in the letter of the law. Go ahead and harbor bitterness. Go ahead and say terrible things about that person. Even if they're not true, don't even worry about it. As long as you don't go all the way to the physical act. And what Jesus is saying is that God's not only concerned about the physical act. Don't do that, by the way. But he's also concerned about the heart, the heart of murder, what leads us to that end. So uh, let me just push your buttons a little bit. Would you like me to push your buttons? Say yes. Okay. It's political campaign season right now. And there are going to be political ads in your face constantly. And some of them are going to make you go, that's right. Yeah. Vote for my candidate. And some of them are going to have the opposite effect on you. This would be a great place to practice this command right here. Okay. <laughs> Most of us couldn't get into the mental state that would make us willingly follow through on the act, but don't, that th don't think that means that you've somehow arrived at righteousness, is Jesus' point. In this area, Jesus says, even having a heart that is full of contempt still puts you on the same path, even if you haven't followed it through to its full conclusion. And he goes on to say this weird thing about leaving your gift at the altar and going to make it right with that person. It's more important to him that you make peace, that you make reconciliation, than it is for you to simply follow through with acts of worship, to perform acts of worship. It's more important to him that you, that you reposition your heart to a place of grace and forgiveness. So he moves on to the next one. Verse 27, he says, You've heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you, that it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Um, I think we can all agree, also a good law. I think we agree on that. Um, Only harmful things are going to arise from that. And I would say many of you in this room understand in one way or another firsthand the destruction that can come into your life because of this. Um, I, think, I think we've all been connected to it or know someone or close to someone who, who understands that. And if your life has been touched by this issue, what I want to say is these are safe people. This is a safe place for you. Jesus didn't come to judge you. He didn't come for that. And neither did we. This is a safe place for you. The people around you are safe people. So let's start anew right here where we are. Let's go from where we are. There's no going back, but God's heart is full of grace about the past. So let's move forward. Let's just take Jesus seriously. And if you've never been impacted by this issue, praise God. How awesome is that? Let's just take what Jesus says seriously so that we can put ourselves on solid ground, okay? So just like murder, Jesus condemns the outward physical act, but he also condemns the inward act of the heart. Now, Jesus doesn't say that the two are the same, that, that the inward act and the outward act are the same thing. He doesn't necessarily say that, but he does say they're both sin and they both have damaging effects. They both have negative outcomes. Similar to having a heart of murder, having uh, entertaining lust in the mind puts you on the path toward the physical action. It's not leading you anywhere good. It's not leading us anywhere good. Jesus is truly dealing with the root of the outward action right here, which is our thought life. And I'm going to speak for myself, and you can speak for yourself. A lot of crazy stuff goes on in there. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's probably fair to say for all of us that a lot of stuff we're not really that proud of goes on in there too, right? Friends, we have to get control of our thought life. The Apostle Paul says it this way, take every thought captive before it turns into an action. When Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. I don't think he's actually saying literally gouge your eye out, and I'll tell you why in just a second, but I do think it demonstrates a seriousness. He's taking it seriously. He's using strong language here for, in order to say, this is really a big deal. This is really a big deal. Take drastic action. Now, um, I don't think he's saying literally do that, literally gouge your eye out. And the reason I don't think that is because even if you gouge your eye out, you could still do the thing that he just talked about previously when it comes to murder, and you could still do the act in your mind. Getting rid of your eye wouldn't do you, wouldn't do you any good. I think what he's saying is, even if it's really drastic, get rid of whatever it is that's causing this problem for you, that's causing you to sin. It might mean that you need to end a relationship that hasn't turned bad, but you can see the possibility. It might mean that you just need to cut it off now. It might mean that. It might mean that you need to stop going to that place, or you need to get rid of that streaming service, or or whatever. It could be a bunch of different things. I would just say... If you're a married person in this room and you're entertaining sexual fantasies, you're committing the act in your heart. You're already on the path. Now, not everybody's wired quite the same. For some people, it might not be like overtly sexual in nature. It could be a romantic fantasy about how great it would be to be in a relationship with that person instead. You're on the path. 
Okay, I just, I just want to be candid. I just want to do everything I can to spare you the heartache that's at the end of that path, if at all possible. When you're headed the wrong direction, what should you do? You should change direction. That's a pretty easy answer. Not continue down the same path, turn around. Okay, so uh, I've said many times over the years uh, to, specifically I say this to like young husbands, younger men, uh, I often give them the advice, find a really old guy with a beat up Bible who loves his wife and find out what he knows. Same is true for young women, by the way. Okay, find, find an old woman with a beat up Bible who loves her husband and find out what she knows. I'm going to tell you something that I've probably told you before that an old guy with a beat up Bible who loved his wife very deeply told me. Something that he used to say. Want what you have. Want what you have. Train yourself to want what you have. This works on everything, by the way. You know what I love? I love, I love 2005 Ford Explorers, <laughs> especially if they're beige and have over 200,000 miles on them. Oh my gosh, I just want one of those so bad. Good news, I have one. <laughs> want what you have. Want what you have. It's possible that this could require some drastic action in your life. I, I totally acknowledge that. It might require a drastic change, but it's better to cut off the thing that is leading you to destruction before you get there than to get there and have to deal with it anyway. This works on all kinds of stuff, but if you want to stop desiring what you don't have and start enjoying what you do have, want what you have. It's actually a logical conclusion. You want to stop wishing your life was better and start enjoying the life that actually is better, want the life you have. Want what you have. Okay. That was heavy stuff. Those two topics were both really heavy. One more heavy one, and then they get a little easier. Okay? Um, we doing good? Everybody doing okay? Okay. Um, listen, we just live in a world where these things are realities. And we just, we just can't gloss over them, run away from them. They are realities. The good news is Jesus' promise at the end of this is he's leading us to life on the rock. Okay? Let's see here. Verse, let's go. Here we go. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. This particular one re requires quite a bit of, um, of context to really really fully get your head around. So here's what's happening. In, in Jesus' day, the priesthood had taken a, a section of scripture found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, where it talks about um, if a man divorces his wife, he should give her a certificate of divorce. Um, they've taken that and they interpret it to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any reason he wanted to, so long as he handed her the dumb slip of paper, or animal skin, or whatever, whatever the certificate was for them. As long as he jumps through the right hoops, then God's totally cool with it. That was, that was the essence of what they had begun to teach. But actually, what the passage says is, it says, if a man finds uncleanness, or you could translate it indecency in his wife, then he can divorce her, and he should give her a certificate of divorce. It doesn't just say, well, as long as you give the certificate, it's fine. But a lot's hanging on how you interpret that word uncleanness or indecency, isn't it? Like, what they had done is they had basically followed uh, one of two schools of thought. There was, there was two of them in that day. Uh, one of them was taught by a rabbi named Shammai, and he taught that uncleanness meant sexual sin. So if a husband found that his wife had been unfaithful, he could, 
divorce her so long as he gave a certificate of divorce. There's a party going on out there, sounds like. Uh, all right, I'm, I'm going to let uh, someone else deal with that. And if it's a huge problem, we'll find out. All right. So the, the first school of thought was, uh, the first interpretation, this Rabbi Shammai taught that uncleanness meant, unsexual, meant sexual sin. So a husband could divorce his wife if he found that she had been unfaithful and he could give her a certificate. The second school of thought was taught by a rabbi named Hillel, who taught that uncleanness meant anything that the husband found displeasing about his wife, so long as he gives a certificate. Guess which one of those schools of thought was the more popular? The easy one. Okay? The easy one was the one that everyone seemed to embrace. A husband could just discard his commitment, blow off his commitment for really any reason he wanted to move on to greener pastures, and it would be totally justified so long as he gave the certificate. But Jesus comes along and he clarifies uncleanness to mean sexual immorality. He actually leans toward the first interpretation. Now, it's an interesting phrase because the phrase that we translate sexual immorality in English comes from the Greek word pornea, uh, which I think you probably have, uh, have, can understand what other words we get from that. Um, what it means is really any type of sexual indiscretion. It doesn't have to be an outward action. It could also be inward. It doesn't simply restrict sexual immorality to the outward act, but as we've seen, it can also be an act of the heart and the mind. It can also be internal. And Jesus says sexual immorality is the justifiable reason for divorce. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul comes along and he adds a second reason. He says, if an unbelieving spouse has abandoned the relationship, then the believing spouse is free to move on from that. But the point that Jesus is making is not about you know, faithfulness and fidelity. It's not about the law. The point that Jesus is making is that marriage should be a permanent arrangement, that when we make those commitments, we should keep them. And wherever you're at right now, guess what? There's only one way to go. And Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. He came to give us life. This should be a permanent arrangement. Now, these are really weighty topics. And again, I just want to say, this is a safe place for you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, you might need to process some of these further. And I would say there's a couple places for you to do that. If you're in a community group, this is the function of a community group, to share these things together in safety. But I would also say, of course, any of your pastors are glad to process this with you. Let's quickly go through the less weighty issues, okay? Verse 33, it says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So I, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." Don't take an oath, he says. Now, at this time, uh, the devoted religious people have basically taken the position that uh, it's okay to make a promise as long as you don't swear by the name of God. You know, it's not that big a deal if you don't do what you said you'll do. Just as long as you don't use God's name in vain and take an oath under God, then, you know, it's probably not that big a deal. Now, of course, they had done what overly religious people always do, and that is totally ignored the spirit of the law and just made it about black and white. 
The irony in that is that Jesus comes along and addresses the spirit of the law, but yet uh, it's easy for people who are highly religious to still take what Jesus said right here and make it black and white and ignore the spirit of the law. They take this to mean, many people in our day, that Christians should not enter into any kind of an oath or a contract of any kind. Because Jesus says, don't swear. God bless you. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But that's not the point that he's making at all. The point he's making is, tell the truth. Do what you say you're going to do. Keep your commitments. Followers of Christ should be people of character and integrity. Is any of us perfect at that? At that? Of course not. But tell the truth. Keep your commitments. Do what you'll say to do. And just in case you need biblical evidence that God is not opposed to you taking an oath or entering into a contract, Luke 173 says, God himself swore an oath to Abraham, just in case you need that. A follower of Christ should be a person of their word. That's the point that he's making. All right, verse 38. We're cruising along. We're doing, we're doing great. Jesus continues to talk. He says, you've also heard it said, heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the Old Testament law actually does say an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. That, that actually is an Old Testament law. But in this time, they had taken that to mean that if someone hurts you, you have every right and maybe a little bit of an obligation to hurt them in return. To, to give it back to them. This is what's fair. This is, the, this is what's just. This is what the right thing to do is. But they had totally disregarded the spirit of the law. Because in Exodus 21, when this law is given, it's actually given as a way to restrict the judges of that day from giving overly harsh punishments to people. Uh, people would commit small offenses, and they would reap these massive punishments that were totally disproportionate. Uh, perhaps in some places in the world, we could maybe revisit this little section here today even. Um, but, but the law was given to restrict the judges in their civic circle. What they did was they took it and applied it to our personal relationships. But here's the problem. Let's just say someone approached you on the street and knocked out your tooth. Depending on your personality, if you're a fighter, fight or flight person, you might want to run away. But nobody here wants to in kind, respond in kind and knock out one of their teeth. If someone knocks out my tooth, I want to knock out all of their teeth. <laughs> right? You, you want to escalate. Uh, if someone offends you, you, you want to, depending on your personality, say, oh yeah, well, I'm going to take it to the next level. And many of the judges of that day were responding in that same way. And this was God saying, you know what? The punishment needs to fit the crime. Because they were doing so much damage to basically the poor and helpless in their society. So God was giving this law to restrict the punishments that judges could hand out. That was the purpose of this law. It was a principle for civic government, but the Hebrew people had then taken it and applied it to their personal relationships. Um, and I guess I could say this. Uh, I don't know that... An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth is really a great law for personal relationships, is it? Like, 
If you have a friendship or any kind of relationship with someone and the rule of thumb is, well, if you offend me, I'm going to do it back, um, that's just not going to end well. And so they had just totally misappropriated a law that was intended actually for their protection. And then Jesus uses these four analogies. And and for time's sake, they all illustrate the same purpose. I'm just going to refer to the first one. Um, Jesus uses three similar ones. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your left also. Now, most of the time, I think we would interpret that as sort of a, uh, well, if someone offends me, I should just do nothing about it. Um, that's, really not, that's really not the point that they're, that they're making, okay? Here's the thing. If someone came up and was going to slap you on the right cheek, they would either have to be left-handed, which is a pretty small percentage of people, or they would have to slap you open-handed, backhand style, right, to hit you on the, on the right cheek. Well, in their day, we know from rabbinic literature that to slap someone on the right cheek was actually considered a supreme insult, uh, there's sort of a uh, kind of a satirical uh, version of this that we see like in cartoons, you know, like in Victorian culture, the guy takes off the white glove and slaps, uh, slaps the person on the cheek with it. They're not intending to do physical harm. It's not meant to inflict, you know, maximum physical destruction. It's meant to be insulting. It's meant to be a persecution, a way to ridicule someone. And what Jesus is talking about is when people put you down, when people disregard you, perhaps even discriminate against you because of your faith in him, it's okay to respond with grace. In fact, you should respond with grace. He's not saying if someone is physically attacking you, you should just stand there and take it. That's, that's not the point that he, he's not saying do not defend yourself under any circumstances. Another analogy that he uses, I just said I was only going to talk about one, and then I went on to the second one. In their day, a Roman soldier could come along, and uh, the Romans were occupying this part of the world. They could find a Jewish citizen, and if they felt so inclined, they could insist that this Jewish citizen carry their pack. But the law in the Roman, uh, Roman kingdom was you could only force them to do it for one mile. It was actually, the, the rule actually was a thousand steps. You know, we translate that to be roughly a mile, even though uh, maybe for you it's a mile, but that's a pretty long step. So anyway, they could force them to carry their pack for one mile. We'll, we'll go with that. And Jesus says, well, if someone insists that you carry their pack for one mile, carry it too. Well, it's, it's a really interesting idea. What he's saying is, with these analogies, is that if someone insults you, you can redeem the situation. You can actually take yourself out from under their control by saying, I won't carry your pack a mile but I choose to carry it two miles. Or if someone insults you, gives you the white glove across the face, you can actually say, you insulted me and you're expecting me to respond eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I choose to show you love instead. I take myself out from under your control. This is the course of action that Jesus is suggesting. So let's move on to the last section uh, because it, it really sort of ties them all together. He says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I just want to point something out right here. When you read through the Old Testament and the prophets speak on behalf of God and they say, the Lord says, and then they carry on. What Jesus says is, you've heard this said, but I say to you. He's establishing his authority in these issues. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, that last verse is kind of a stumbling block, isn't it? You must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This final section really sums up all of the ones that came before it. In the same way that our sin has made us enemies of God, but He has shown us love in return, likewise... We should show love and grace to our enemies. If we, if we want to follow Jesus, we should show love and grace to our enemies, he says. This is a hard teaching. It really is. All of it. Every point that he makes is, is a hard one to digest. It's, it's difficult. But the big idea of the whole section is this. The condition of your heart matters. Intent does matter. It does matter to God. Who you are matters more to him than your ability to just keep the rules, to just keep the law. Simply doing Christian stuff, like showing up to church or saying, God bless it, when you slam your thumb in the drawer instead of the other thing, <laughs> right? That doesn't make you a Christian any more than hanging out in your garage makes you a car. It, it just doesn't. The action isn't what makes you one of God's children. What we see here is that every time Jesus says, you have heard it said, the law says, we realize that we have failed to keep the law. The reason he, he states the law is so that we'll hear it and go, yeah, I haven't been very good at that. At, at almost every turn, you know, gosh, I mean, out of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, I may have accidentally kept a few of them. Uh, but, but the truth is, we all have guilt in this area. We hear the law and we realize we can't be righteous on our own, and that's really the point that he's driving us toward. We can't be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We, we simply can't do it, which really calls into question, okay, well, why did he just say we have to do it? Why did he just say you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is? And we know that we can't do it by keeping the standard. Friends, this should continually drive you back to the cross, the fact that the cross has spoken on your behalf. This knowledge should continually drive us back to repentance, and ultimately, it should drive praise and gratitude in our hearts because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has paid that bill for us. God's standard is perfection, and it's a high standard. But Romans 3.21, this is what it says. It says, but now a different righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been manifest apart from the law, a separate righteousness. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness, this different righteousness, is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. No matter where you're at, it's for all who believe. This different righteousness. You're not perfect as God is perfect. Me too. I should have took a show of hands for that one. But we have a different kind of righteousness. 
No one can come into his favor without this perfect righteousness, and certainly no one can enter heaven without perfect righteousness. So what do we do? We put our hope in the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ, and it's for everyone who believes. And you're thinking, me? Yeah, you. Everyone. It's for everyone who believes. No matter where you've been, it's all in the past. The cross has spoken. So what do we do? As we follow Jesus, he's leading us to life on the rock. We deny ourselves life on the sand to gain life on the rock. So what might that, what might that look like? We, we deny ourselves hostility and bitterness. We deny ourselves retribution so that we can gain a life of peace. We deny ourselves sexual immorality. We deny ourselves lust. We deny ourselves one type of sexuality so that we can gain the joy and intimacy that comes from devotion and fidelity. We deny ourselves the sand so that we can gain life on the rock. Would you do me a favor and stand with me? Uh, I am, I'm so serious right now, and we've been talking about this a lot in our staff meetings and our other conversations, about being a church that hears the word and puts it into practice. And the truth is, as I've kind of processed this, uh, part of what's brought me to that place is just realizing this is the only thing that works. And by works, I mean it's the only thing that brings us under God's umbrella into the life that he has for us. He's chosen to disclose himself to us through his word. And I don't know about you, I've tried a lot of other things to find joy and fulfillment and meaning, to feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And Jesus says, sometimes you got to deny yourself. You got to deny yourself life on the sand in order to gain our life on the rock. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that you have made a solid foundation available to us. And Lord, right now, just as a, as a church family, uh, we're we're in all different places, and you, you know that. You, you're intimately aware of every detail of each one of our lives and, and our inner thought life and our inner dialogue. You, you're part of that. You, you know all of that. But God, we just want to celebrate the fact that your call is for each one of us, that we're, we're sort of scattered all over the place in our thinking, but you call each one of us onto the same rock. So God, I pray that as a church family, you would make us good, really good at loving one another, at supporting one another, at appointing one another toward you. God, I pray that your voice would just call loud to each one of us. God, I pray that you would give us the the boldness and the desire to celebrate what you've done, to want what we have, to desire life on the rock and say no to life on the sand so that we can have something better. Thank you that you provided it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Rick. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Kelly.